Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 75. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. On today's episode, we're talking about religion, race, and whiteness in New Testament scholarship with Professor David Horrell, who is Professor of New Testament Studies and the Director of the Center for Biblical Studies at the University of Exeter. He's the author of a number of important studies, including Solidarity and Difference, a Contemporary Reading of Paul's Ethics, and most recently, Ethnicity and Inclusion, Religion, Race, and Whiteness in Constructions of Jewish and Christian Identities. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Grace Emmett, Dr. Chris Porter, Dr. Logan Williams, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So carry on in our conversation on cultural identity. Today, we're joined by Professor Horrell, who talks specifically about the issue of contextualized readings and particular readings from the perspective of a white male, the sort of dominant or sort of centered approach to New Testament scholarship. It's really helpful to hear his thoughts kind of meta-reflectively on this issue that we're exploring in this series. And, And what were some of the takeaways that you all had from this conversation with Professor Horrell. I really appreciated uh, David's engagement with his own framework for study uh, and his willingness to revisit uh, his prior work and, and to think about the perspective that he comes from and how that has has shaped his uh, scholarship so far and, and indeed how it sh- shapes the entire discipline. Uh, I've really enjoyed his his book, Ethnicity and Inclusion. I think it, it's a, it's a great uh, way to be able to explore the the large work that he's doing, uh, and we had a great conversation uh, d- diving into some of the the areas uh, of how whiteness uh, really affects and and engages with uh, the perspective that we come to uh, the text, and not just the text, but our studies of the text from. Yeah, I really appreciated the discussion of the history of readings of the New Testament, particularly the history. Uh, the, long, the long history in which Christians have been reading uh, the New Testament, particularly Paul, um, as providing a universal religion as an alternative to a particular uh, and national religion of Judaism. Uh, we kind of probe and question and critique the context in which that interpretation arose and identify its troubling implications and results. I really enjoyed this episode, and I think there's lots of different things I could pick up on as highlights. I think I particularly enjoyed uh, David describing the need to listen desperately, which he talks about towards the end, uh, as a way of modeling how we actually engage different interpretive interpretive approaches, uh, rather than sort of simply affirming and acknowledging that different reading approaches exist, uh, but making sure we do the work of engaging with them and learning from them, that it moves beyond sort of affirmation to um, yeah, self-reflective change, I suppose. Um, so I thought that phrase, listen desperately, was a really helpful way of uh, encapsulating a lot of the stuff that we talked about. And here's our conversation with Professor Horrell. Thanks so much for joining us, David. 
Pleasure. So let, let's start by talking about your book, Ethnicity and Inclusion. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about kind of the central thesis of that book, uh, considering that one of the aims of it uh, is about the role of whiteness in constructing identity. I wonder if you could tell us about that in particular. Yeah, sure. I mean, the book, the book came about um, as the, these things always have a, have a history. I mean, I was thinking about uh, I've been working for too many years on the first letter of Peter and was thinking about the, the language of two, nine to ten in particular. I mean, some years back now where these various sort of people terms are used to, to I mean, put in modern terms to kind of construct the identity of this group. And um, Denise Kimber Buell's work on um, sort of use of, if you like, sort of ethnic reasoning, ethnic terminology in the making of Christian identity, uh, I, f- I found really stimulating and helpful. And also found myself sort of reflecting back a bit on an earlier book, a uh, book I'd done on, on Pauline ethics and thinking about what it showed about the sort of location of my scholarship, the kind of tradition in which I was trained, that, that what I was doing in that book in terms of thinking about um, the kind of parallels between, if you like, Paul's modes of ethical instruction and, and contemporary sort of Western political liberalism. So that got me thinking along the lines uh, that, that the book then pursued the kind of questions that began to began to well, trouble me. That sounds a bit negative, maybe, but began to be ones I'd, I wanted to kind of um, to try and think a bit more about. And maybe I'm sure we'll say a bit more later about the whiteness thing. I mean, I suppose in brief, it was a way of thinking critically about my own particularity, my own kind of location within, I mean, not simply individually, but kind of within the discipline of which I'm a part. And I suppose in terms of, in terms of the thesis of the book, I'd probably try and capture it as the ways in which Jewish and Christian identities are often described and contrasted in New Testament scholarship are if you like products of a particular context a context that is i mean these are other sort of crude simplifications but you know white christian western european in which a kind of enduring and underlying motivation is to demonstrate in some way that effectively the superiority of christianity what christianity brings that judaism didn't yet or couldn't otherwise do and specifically in ways that kind of vindicate the evolving values of Western society. And I think it's almost began to strike me more and more that that's, that's not a coincidence, but that tells us something about the kind of location out of which that scholarship comes. Yeah, thank you for that. And I wonder whether we can go into a bit more detail by thinking about uh, sort of a particular text. And I know you've spent a lot of time thinking about Galatians 3.28 and how um, readings of that might be influenced by this sort of dichotomy uh, that emerges between uh, Judaism and Christianity and perhaps tendencies to emphasise the superiority of Christianity as this inclusivist religion, whereas Judaism is this kind of ethnic exclusive religion in that sense. Um, so I wonder if you could just unpack that a bit more and then also talk about how whiteness studies comes into that and how you trace that through the sort of history of interpretation. Yes, thank you. I, I guess Galatians 3.28 is one of those sort of classic Pauline text, isn't it, with, with the very famous phrases about, you know, in Christ there is no longer Jew or Greek, slave and free, no longer male and female. I mean, in a way, is a kind of classic expression of what's often depicted as a kind of Pauline inclusivism, I suppose, a kind of all are welcome, uh, welcome as they are within this kind of embracing community. And I mean, one of the, one of the things that struck me when I was looking at uh, the, the history of interpretation of that verse was the the changing ways in which the vision is depicted. I mean, there's there's some, I mean, it's not to say it sort of shifts in ways that are perhaps radically opposed to ways it's been interpreted earlier, but but the 
it's interesting to see the terms in which scholars ex express the achievement that Paul is thought to have just thought to, to be expressing in that verse you know in stuff from the the early part of the the, the 20th century you might get um i mean i think this is um ernest dewitt burton talks about sort of paul you know the 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 vision of the world under one universal religion it's sort of pre-ecumenical dialogue pre-interfaith dialogue there's a kind of sense of i mean that's what this vision looks like in ways that probably now we would we would think well maybe that that's not how i'd put that and then and you move to much more recent interpretations where people often talk about about inclusion or inclusivism or a kind of inclusive vision and i suppose one of the things that struck me is you know it well it seems to me not merely coincidental that the terms in which people express the vision shift over time but also kind of mirror the the changing values of a particular society so sort of inclusion and and you know welcoming diversity for example just sound so much like the things that western liberalism particularly lords at this point in time which i suppose is not to say either that you know i don't find those valuable values nor to say that one can't find points of connection with them in terms of understanding what what paul's driving at but that it's one of the things that that suggests to me that our interpretations are more shaped by the particular context in which we're doing that work more than is often intended or explicitly kind of identified or or thought about um and i suppose specifically just uh in in relation to the point about if you like sort of jewish exclusivism and christian inclusion where again galatians 328 is often a a bit of a classic text for seeing that kind of you know Jewish ethnocentrism it's only those who are circumcised and obedient to the law who can enjoy these benefits and then then Paul kind of throws it open to everyone that I mean in some ways it, it's an equally exclusive vision but one that has changed the terms on which the exclusion and inclusion are are based so you know in Christness which I suppose you know elsewhere in the book we've talked about the extent to which that's a kind of an identity described and developed in kind of people-like terms it is now the kind of you know it's those who are who share that kind of marker of belonging that are together in this group such that other kinds of identifiers that might have been defining or salient in other contexts are are, are not so in the same way so i think there are you know there are if you like sort of ways of thinking about it that don't so quickly play into that that kind of dichotomy is there a kind of irony here that it strikes me as curious uh, that uh, in the midst of, you know, identifying this uh, Galatians 3, 26, 28 as this universalizing, you know, kind of move that anticip basically anticipates European society that, uh, um, or in, in their eyes anticipates, you know, European liberal values, that at the same time, they also are unable to recognize or at least unwilling to admit the particularities of their own circumstance. So they perceive not only Paul to be this universal, doing this universalizing thing, but they also perceive their interpretation thereof to be basically straightforward and and universal. Yeah, that's that's a good a good point. Partly because I guess the the extent to which what Paul is seen to be doing in terms of a sort of universalizing, a kind of include a, a welcome to all, and the extent to which that's also part of the agenda of the interpreters is, uh, I mean, those those two sorts of horizons of universalizing you might say are are sort of you know they're not they're not neatly separable it seems to me so i i, I suppose it, it goes back to one of the ways in which thinking about 
whiteness or reading some of the reflection on whiteness kind of made me think in that thinking of something as kind of universal or universally applicable or kind of open to all without recognizing the kind of exclusive particularities one is putting around that or the particularities of the context from which you see that or perhaps the the particularities of the demands you make to be part of that are I think sort of precisely align with the kinds of things that studies of whiteness have, have tried to draw critical attention to namely this this idea that you you think of yourself as just kind of just thinking or speaking for for how humans see things or whatever and and without stopping to think about the the ways in which the particularity of your location identity frame that in particular ways within that universalizing trend is often extended into other texts and certainly uh, as a Johannine scholar, it's often extended, as I see it, towards the Johannine community, and the community becomes this particularistic uh, sec sect that is separated out from the world because there's a Jewish-Christian divide, and you have these, these theories of community that go on there. And yet, at the same time, a lot of the scholars who advocate for a, a strong Johannine community are also well, not struck dumb necessarily because they often write a fair bit about it, but divided on what to do with, say, 1 Corinthians 9. Uh, where Paul exp expresses a form of uh, ethnic or identity malleability, or more precisely, a, a contextual salience uh, that is required of his identity construction there, uh, where he says to the Jew, I become a Jew, when the Gentiles I become like a Gentile. Uh, and it often strikes me as someone who is very, very literally transracial uh, in that I am ethnically, biologically mostly Asian, half Asian, uh, but I grew up in a, in a white context here in Australia. Um, I have white, adoptive white Australian parents. So I, I live in this liminal space where the salience of my identity changes depending on the context I'm in. So I'm interested in how you see that working across, these, across the text. So Galatians definitely points towards universalism, but what happens when we get to, to things like John, where it pu push, the universalism pushes in the other direction, or where like one Corinthians where you you see it meeting in the middle and I mean I, was, I wrote an article recently with Brian Rosner and Brian off, often gets these questions like surely you know this is just in, Paul being inauthentic to himself or he's lying he can't he can't de-circumcise himself uh, so what do we do with those sort of texts yeah I suppose it's just sort of two two reactions or two thoughts trying to pick up some of those really interesting thoughts Chris it, it's kind of interesting in relation to that that one Corinthians text thinking about it in relation to say galatians 328 is that if you like the extent to which i mean to pick up a phrase from 2 corinthians 12 the extent to which paul is an anthropos en christo i mean the extent to which he is an in christ defined person isn't up for malleability or or optionality in the same way that these other aspects of his identity are which so i mean you know picking up what i just said about galatians 328 the extent to which the sort of the in christness has become the the defining boundary making point of inclusive or exclusive uh, definition and I, and i suppose that would um i mean i'm not a johannine expert at all um but uh, might help to to some extent when we deal with texts that are in one sense very open in the sense of, you know an invitation to all as it were uh, but at the same time very sort of tightly bounded or differentiated sort of community against world 
kind of kind of stuff. And I suppose that that leads into the second thought, which is you know picking up something that Denise Kimber Buell looks at in her book Why This New Race, picking up earlier work uh, in in the field of classics by Jonathan Hall, where she talks about what is it sort of aggregative and oppositional modes of ethnic reasoning. In, in other words, and again, I think this often strikes us as a sort of intrinsically sort of just just a bit alien in that we tend to think of you know ethnicity as a kind of identity that you tick on a survey but you are this or you're that or whatever and you know your opening comments it, it sort of began to illustrate that's a, a rather more fluid and complex kind of thing than 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 we often we often are, are sort of led to presume um but so her, her particular focus is the the way in which groups can can use ethnic or ethnicizing language in different strategic ways so you can use it in this kind of the aggregative the aggregative or the, the almost the sort of universalizing move is the move of saying you know there is this new people of god in christ and you can all you can all be part of it you know there's no reason why other people cannot join this new people on the other hand it can be used in the more kind of oppositional way to draw to draw distinctions and boundaries you know there's this people and then there's there's those who are not and the, you know the, the kind of more I suppose clearly or explicitly exclusionary kinds of uses of, of in some ways the same kinds of categories but being deployed in different strategic ways. Yeah, I wonder if there's also a third way, which I guess it meshes in with some of the universalistic tendencies. Uh, but I'm thinking of the studies done of Bulgarian Jewishness uh, in the in the Second World War, where there were ethnic arguments made by the Bulgarian Parliament such that the Jews were not. Jewish, uh, their primary ethnicity was Bulgarian, and therefore Bulgarian law should apply to them rather than, uh, and they should be interned within as political dissonance or dissidents within uh, Bulgaria, rather than uh, Jewish dissidents, or so rather than Jewish people, and therefore uh, taken to Treblinka. Uh, it almost seems that this is a, a universalizing tendency uh, of inclusion, but inclusion. I, I, I often I struggle with this as to how we how we would then talk about this as as a, a sense of inclusion and exclusion because it is very much in that sense of uh, the command the command to love love your neighbour uh, but at the same time it is eradicating a group distinction so how do we do that when uh, so I, I, yeah I I think the aggregate of uh, category is is a really interesting one to explore there. Yeah, and I think I think it also reminds me, you know, in the in the in the work I did on on just just sort of reading current thinking about ethnicity, race, and also about religion, in ways that often run run counter to the, if you like, the way we often and I think popularly perceive things like ethnicity or race as if they are they are simply sort of givens. Which I mean, in one sense, you know, I can't change who my parents were for better or you know <laughs> as kids often bemoan you know that, that you're stuck with them um that in one sense it seems like this just given kind of category but but actually the ways in which we choose to define it the lines we choose to draw the the things we we decide i mean as we not as individuals but often as, as societies and so on or, or sometimes judicially um determine as significant become the kind of defining lines in ways in which uh, and and in ways in which you know religion is often complexly bound up in that kind of process i mean you know the, the sort of conflict in the former yugoslavia or bosnia and so on I mean, is another interesting category where you look at the way the three people groups are named it can be either along 
with kind of religious terminology or with ethnic terminology and the extent to which those are neatly separable, I think is very much open to question. I mean, Northern Ireland or Ireland, the North of Ireland would, would be another case in point where, I mean, again, I, I guess our sort of instincts in, in certain countries of the world, certain contexts at least, are to think of religion as this kind of, I mean, it's a slightly Protestant model, isn't it? The kind of freely chosen, you know, the faith decision that puts you here or there religiously, but the extent to which that is actually woven quite strongly, I mean, more in some contexts than others, but woven quite strongly into a sense of what people you belong to or don't belong to. So uh, there's a very, very interesting article from, I think, 1997 uh, that was written in Hebrew called Orientalism, Jewish Studies and Israeli Culture, a few comments. Um, and it's by, um, just for anyone who wants to go look at it, Amnon Raz uh, Kratotskin, and it's republished in um, Philological Encounters, uh, Volume 2 by Brill, uh, in, in a translation in English. Uh, and one of the things I found so helpful about that article is basically argues that Jewish studies in Germany, it was fueled by the, the Jewish question, was whether Jew, uh, Jews were, could be integrated into European society, or were they an oriental, quote unquote, oriental society. So th this framework is completely orientalist, right? Are they oriental and therefore can't really be a part of us because they're all the things that the Orient is? Or are they um, European? Uh, and I think that's a really helpful way of framing the early German discourse on Jewish Christian, early Jewish Christian relations, because it, it contextualizes the way that the, the way that German scholars answered that question was by saying, Ah, oh, Judaism is particular. It's primitive. It believes in a national God. It wasn't. It wasn't mature enough to, you know, realize that this one God could be universal and that could could, you know, that that God could accept everyone. And that's had a really long legacy in New Testament studies, right? Um, that uh, Judaism is particular and Christianity is universal, and that is recapitulated, of course, in the New Perspective. People like. And T. Wright and James Dunn, that the problem with Judaism, quote unquote, is that it's too narrow, but Christianity is, is universal. I wonder if you could say some comments about the kind of legacy of, you know, early German anti-Semitism and how it determines so much of what we talk about today in New Testament studies and in interpretations, particularly of Paul, but also in the New Testament in general, and how maybe we can escape that. Uh, and escape those kind of uh, default ways of looking at this text because it, it goes well beyond New Testament studies, obviously. Yeah, no, thanks. That's a really, a really important question. I mean, a big question, but um, yeah, really, a really important one. And and to some extent, the the kind of material I try and deal with in the first chapter of the book, you know, is my engagement with with the the, the, the sort of if you like the history of New Testament interpretation in relation to these particular issues. And I found uh, Sean Kelly's book, Racializing Jesus, which is uh, back from 2002, but I think was a really helpful and probing work on this. Because, I mean, one of the things he, he does, and, and then I do a bit of as well, is to, to look back to say, um, to say Hegel, and the influence of Hegel on Ferdinand Christian Bauer, one of the kind of founding figures of modern New Testament studies as a kind of critical historical discipline. And, and so for, for Hegel, there's this, um, what's this sort of narrative of sort of progress in humanity's history in the world in which the Orient, if you like, or the Oriental peoples, as uh, pick up your, what you were just talking about, Logan, you know, play a particular role have a sort of almost like sort of some importance but are clear but are also people unable to rise to the the sort of the freedom 
freedom of the spirit, which which um, which in a sense then Bauer sees Paul kind of anticipating, and surprise, surprise, you know, the Germanic peoples, the European peoples are those who are able to be those among whom this kind of reaching the the um the epitome of a sort of truly free humanity uh comes to comes to to sort of realization and i think you know one of the in in some ways one of the most disturbing and kind of ominous aspects of that for me i mean clearly it has its dreadful legacy in relation to to anti-semitism in in germany and the holocaust and so on um but also the fact that those ideas, those sort of lofty ideals of humanity's kind of freedom and, and ability to reach this, this kind of mature stage of flourishing, were being articulated precisely at the point in history when Europeans were brutally conquering, colonizing, enslaving, killing millions of people around the world. And you think, well, how, you know, how can you kind of hold those two things together at the same time? And I think you know you do so through a kind of racial ideology or set of racial ideologies which sees certain kinds of humans as just more more you know on a lower level, more kind of like the beasts and the animals than we lofty Europeans. I mean that's putting it all very very kind of crudely, but I think there's a you know that that's how those two kinds of um, sets of ideas uh, are are held in held together. And part of the claim, I mean, again, it picks up some of the things you were just thinking. I mean, part of the claim of that opening chapter of the book, where I sort of survey some of that stuff, is that however much we talk about paradigms having radically shifted in New Testament scholarship, and you can find plenty of people saying, well, you know, the way Bauer saw things, we've completely rejected that and moved away from it now. And, you know, new perspective was supposed to be this whole, you know, attempt to, to divest ourselves of these Christian caricatures of Judaism that cast it in, in negative and, and unfair terms. But were, as you rightly said, I mean, replaced by a, another version of the Judaism is ethnocentric and exclusive and, you know, grace confined to one race kind of thing. And Paul throws it open to everybody. I mean, very much really that that bower like vision. And then even in some more recent work, you know, that, that, that might pick up this emphasis on us depicting Judaism in, in antiquity, or the label Eudaios and so on as, as kind of an ethnic identifier contrasted with this trans-ethnic um, kind of inclusive model that Paul represents. So it seems to me that although we change, you know, the terminology has changed quite significantly, the kind of the, the, the pattern, the kind of dichotomy, as I call it, um, keeps kind of getting replicated in, in sort of new forms. And I suppose, and this, this returns to a bit of your question, you know, one of the things that almost a sort of meta question a big broader level question about that 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 troubles me is is you know given that as a modern critical scholarly discipline new testament studies developed in europe during this particular time of its history have we have we sort of sufficiently radically thought about how far the discipline's paradigms and instincts of ways of operating need to be need to be sort of rethought um in order, and you know that that's a, an exercise of sort of self-criticism in which many disciplines have been been engaged over over some decades. You know whether it's geography or anthropology or English literature or classics, whatever. But and I, I almost ironically, given that New Testament studies is somewhat more bound up in these issues, or certainly as bound up in these issues as other disciplines, I think we probably haven't given, or, or we either haven't given the same level of attention to it, or perhaps 
the attention given to it hasn't come to the centre of the discipline in the same way as it ha- as it might have done. I think what's interesting with this as well, in terms of thinking about how do we actually move forward, um, and thinking about the interplay perhaps between uh, the individual and then our kind of corporate responsibility as a discipline. I know something you've done is to sort of self-reflect a little bit on some of your earlier work, um, having applied the sort of lens of whiteness study to some of your more recent work. And you talk about that in ethnicity and inclusion and what it's like revisiting it. I wonder if you could just kind of talk us through that and sort of what it's been like revisiting earlier work. Yeah, I think the, the issue of sort of reflecting critically on one's own work is is an interesting one, partly because, I mean, it can become a bit self-indulgent to do so overly, can't it? as if, you know, scholarship is about reflecting on your earlier scholarship and, and moving forward. Um, on the other hand, I think sometimes there's a risk of, uh, I mean, there's, there's a kind of joke that's done the rounds about, you know, the, the, uh, the university, pro- the definition of the university professor as someone who spends their career defending the mistakes in their dissertation. You know, the kind of, uh, it, it, it doesn't seem to me any virtue to feel that whatever one has written in the past must just be r- rigorously defended. You know, I, it would be a very uncomfortable place to think that something you had previously written was just completely flawed or completely mistaken. But it does seem to me, you know, if we're moving and moving collectively along a kind of journey in which we we make progress, as it were. I mean, maybe that's a kind of, you know, uh, an illusory kind of dream, but that, that thinking back critically and thinking about ways in which you would now think a bit differently or frame differently or take on in a different direction things that you've done previously is all a, a sort of healthy part of a, of a discipline individually and, and collectively. So, yeah, I mean, it's it, it struck me when I was engaged in the work on this current project that... You know, it was it was interesting how I framed the exercise engaged in in the book Solidarity and Difference. Not that I would sort of reject all of that or see it as kind of utterly flawed or anything, but it was very much a project in which the focus was on Paul and the way in which Paul might provide resources for thinking positively about living in plural, modern, multi-religious, democratic kind of societies in which the kind of framing theorists were Stanley Harawas and Jürgen Habermas, theorists whose names don't just happen to begin with the same letter of the alphabet, but, but um, you know, reflect very opposing polls, but also, uh, you know, something I've learned subsequently, really. I mean, there have been questions raised in very different ways about both of them in terms of the extent to which, um, you know, issues of, of race, ethnicity, diversity in that sense have not been taken up or thought about in in either of their work to the to the extent that they they might have been so I mean I I, I did it I, I suppose I partly wanted to convey the sense that reflecting critically on where we are as practitioners within this discipline is not just a finger pointing at other people kind of exercise but something that I think you know I mean the language of we is deliberately used I mean I think just want to sort of include myself in a in the um the process of doing that and 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 particularly reflecting on the extent to which my work was shaped by the particularities of a of a social context and a, and a tradition in which I'd been trained in ways that I hadn't fully appreciated or thought about at the time and I get you know that that chimes into to wider themes which probably rather than me ramble on more about we, we could pick up in in questions beyond if you like it sort of picks up some of the other themes you had in comments and questions I know. 
Yeah, in in regard to that uh, particularity that that you talked about, including yourself in that in that we, um, how would you uh, talk about sort of moving forward with sort of trying to disrupt that center uh, with quote unquote marginal like readings um, and 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 sort of uh, decenter that kind of default sort of white Western approach to New Testament scholarship? A crucial step within that process is to recognize the particularity of the training the perspective the the thinking that any of us i mean that me included sort of represent and that sort of almost particularizing one's own one's own kind of perspective um not just individually but as a kind of as a as a disciplinary tradition is an important step towards realizing that that other particularities for want of a better word um should be equally crucial to helping us enrich and expand and challenge the ways we see things and for me one of the one of the sort of powerful points of some of the discussion about whiteness in terms of of provoking that i mean again for me personally but i think for for others of us in the discipline as well is i mean i remember the way richard dyer in his early book about uh, i mean it's just called white um talked about the way in which it's often sort of presumed that we're just sort of speaking for, I mean, this is a kind of a human way of looking at the world. This is just sort of human knowledge, as it were. Um, and that, that that's a very sort of privileged position to, to kind of presume for oneself and that actually recognizing some of the particularities of it, which have been, I, I think, sort of, you know, unintentional and, and unaware um, that, that, that sort of probing that particularity is an important part of the, um, the, the, the critical reflective process. I mean, there's a really nice illustration of this, which partly takes us into another area, but, uh, or well, for me, it's been, been an interesting um, sort of illustration of this. It takes us probably more into things that Grace has, has worked on and written about, but um, so is it, is it, is it what will seem like a completely off-field off uh, illustration? You know, what, what, what do we, how do we try and know stuff? That's why I think about, you know, epistemology uh, and so on. You know, how, how do we know things? And, and what do we think we're doing when we try and know things? So what do people do when they're designing cars? They want to know that cars are going to be as safe as possible. They're going to protect us if we have a crash. So what do they do? They put a dummy in a car and then they drive that car against a wall at 30 miles an hour or something and see what happens to the dummy and how well it's protected and what we can do to improve car design to protect the human being better when it's in the car. Now I'm sure the people who were doing that work um, thought they were thinking about how best to protect human beings when they're in vehicles. Um, and then you, you can read about this, I think it's on the Stanford University Gendered Innovations uh, website, if I, might, I think that's correct. What stood for the human body? when they were doing that kind of work. Well, it happened to be a kind of five foot nine, average build male body. So what represents the human body without anybody deliberately or perhaps even reflectively thinking what, what stands for just the kind of norm, the kind of who looks like a human when we sit them in the car. And why is that significant? Well, it's significant because it can literally be a matter of life and death. And then, you know, you look at the stats and actually women are more likely to be seriously injured or killed in car crashes. So it's a kind of quite, for me, at least a powerful illustration of what one might call an, an unintentionally male epistemology that thought it was just doing human epistemology. Thought it was just saying, how, how, what does a human what happens to a human when we sit them in the car? But because we un, un, unreflectively 
put a male human in the car, we didn't fully take on board what other kinds of human, what might happen to other kinds of humans when they were in the same kind of car crashing into another car at the same kind of speed. Um, and I think, I mean, that that sort of illustrates for me, and I suppose for those of us who are, who are sort of male within a male dominated discipline and profession, a similar kind of point to the point about whiteness, namely that one can be kind of unaware of the particularity that one inhabits and represents and the extent to which that frames the kind of questions we ask and the way we ask them and what we don't ask and what we forget to ask and, and so on. Uh, and I think there are there are probably, you know, close, never identical, but, you know, parallels with with issues of ethnicity, race, as well as gender, I mean, class as well, and so on, all those kind of intersectional um, characteristics would, would play into this. And that, in other words, in, in order to, to enrich the knowledge we have, we need people who represent different embodied experiences of being human. And, and, and you know, I'd say one can overly individualize that, but it, you know, in, in ways that are enrich the conversation and the knowledge that we, that we pursue in our discipline um, and that that shouldn't be a kind of optional or marginal thing that that you know well there are some people who like to do that kind of thing but the, you know most of us just get on with the business of doing what the discipline's about. I think that example of the sort of car engineering is really interesting and I feel like I have to plug uh, Caroline Criado Perez's book Invisible Women um, for anyone that's listening and hasn't read that and talks about the way that sort of reference man uh, is using kind of lots of different areas uh, and informs how we collect data, which has ramifications like building cars, which are less safe for women and that sort of thing. Uh, but that's an aside. Um, and uh, Logan and I were talking the other day about uh, this kind of marginal and mainstream or marginal and centre and actually how even the language of that is quite difficult because you end up reinforcing that sort of unhelpful binary. So even trying to find language to articulate and disrupt that binary is quite difficult and I know that you've written about sort of the construction of seminars at SBL for example and how we have kind of Pauline studies uh, which is unmarked doesn't have any sort of uh, interpretive approach attached to it uh, and then down the hall there's um, African-American hermeneutics uh, or gender and sexuality and approaches to the bible or something like that uh, which are very visibly marked and I I keep trying to think, you know, what, so what do we do at this point? Do we need to just rename all the seminars or, or how do we actually disrupt that? What is the work of disruption? I'm just curious of what your th thoughts are, perhaps particularly within the context of SBL, but maybe also in other arenas. Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and one, I mean, as a part of the same project, um, Catherine Hockey and I edited a collection of essays under the title Ethnicity, Race, Religion, which were grew out of some of the workshops and conference we, we had as part of the project. And one of the points we make in the in the, the sort of preface to that is that we haven't made a point of labelling any of the contributors as kind of minority voices or, or anything like that. Um, but in a way, kind of deliberately presented the whole collection and its full range of authors as biblical scholars doing work which contributes in various ways to addressing this topic. So it can be, you know, Musa Dube writing about issues of biblical translation and how those played out in Botswana, or it can be John Barclay writing about the ways in which we translate and interpret the term eudaios, or um, Halvor Moxner's writing about the sort of parallels between some of the early scholarship on Jesus from Ernest Renan and Anders Breivik, the Norwegian terrorist, and the, the sort of stereotypes of Jews and Muslims in, in that kind of tr tradition, or Ma Marilu Ibita writing about, uh, about um, lowland Filipinas and the way they engage with, with biblical texts. 
and and it, it as you say it is, it is a tricky one because i can quite see why certain volumes for example want to make explicit that they are representing minority voices or so on because you know, the sort of the realities of the dynamic of the discipline often require that but i think it, it's also valuable to try and think about situations in which yeah we just we just regard the diversity of perspectives and questions that are part of the discipline of biblical studies as part of the discipline of biblical studies um and i think that's part of it so you know i think one could be one could be critical of the extent to which labeling certain approaches makes them optional or marginal in ways that other approaches aren't so you know i think one could make a case that the whole crucial questions however one answers them about um about moving it, moving a discipline beyond its shaping in the origins of a colonizing Europe, the decolonizing kinds of agenda, you know, that to some extent post-colonial studies tries to pick up some of those issues. But then you can find umpteen textbooks about, you know, ways of reading the New Testament. There'll be a little chapter on, you know, some scholars use a post-colonial approach and so on. And it, 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 these, these ways of, of keeping it at the margins. But I agree with you that it's a difficult one to address in that, um, and I've often, you know, thought about this. So, what does it mean to particularize the perspective from which one is reading? It probably doesn't mean that we'd want to put up to, to establish an SBL group for, you know, white European. Re well, would you want a seminar group that was, you know, white European readings of the New Testament, for example? And you know, the fact that we will people listening to the podcast won't be able to see us all kind of giggling, will they? Or, um, but are there ways of acknowledging and maybe maybe inviting critical reflection on the the particularities of an approach to the discipline and and I, yeah i mean i sort of leave that as as a dilemma to which i i don't claim to have a good answer and i think the other dilemma that that strikes me is that i i would hope that we can move beyond a stage in which we as it were simply affirm a range of perspectives as if that you know I, th I think that's that's of a certain degree of value the kind of well these people do this i do this they do that there's, there's sort of a whole range of different approaches that can be taken and you sort of give them all voice in that kind of rigorous dialogue among our various perspectives ought to to also be a, a crucial part of an academic discipline that kind of critical engagement and a kind of rigorous argument about well where does that get us and what are the weaknesses of this kind of perspective and and what does that offer that ought to be taken on board here and so on that that ought to be part of the um part of the conversation as well and and as a final point i mean i was struck by a phrase that i picked up from a feminist philosopher who which included in the final chapter of the book about this um the phrase was about the need to listen desperately uh, and I and I think uh, again for for people like me, I suppose you know, sort of white male, in some ways, sort of privileged in many ways in terms of the ways that academia traditionally operates, that critical reflection on issues of masculinity or whiteness or and so on can be can be you know disturbing and uncomfortable and and difficult. But that the need to listen desperately, the need to say, okay, I need to just shut up for a bit and just try and take on board what other people saying not completely uncritically not without questions and so on but but um to just attend to other voices and other experiences and then to think as hard as we i can about how that how that should shift the way i see things and the kinds of questions i ask i wonder if um so one of the other phrases you use in the closing chapter of the book is uh, making whiteness strange again uh, or, or making it feel strange. 
And um, yeah, the, in that concept of, or in that process of, of listening desperately, I wonder if that, that notion of seeing not just whiteness, but Christianity in general, uh, in, the, in terms of the ethnic divide between Christianity, Judaism, Jew and Gentile, et cetera, making Christianity weird again uh, is, is something that we need to do. Uh, I was reflecting on what you were saying earlier in terms of the colonizing period that we were going through, uh, that, that the world was going through, uh, but certainly from the Western and predominantly white areas of the, of the world uh, in the early to mid 19th century. Uh, and certainly you had uh, Belgian col uh, colonization of, of uh, East Africa, which led to the Hutu and Tutsi delineations of ethnicity, which lead to eventually lead to genocide. Uh, but at the same time, you've got the British colonization of Ireland and the very strong delineation of Ireland as a, as a denigrated culture. Uh, and it makes, when, when, when I often talk about this with, um, with people who have grown up with thinking that Irish are intrinsically white and you talk about and, and show them the, the writings of the late 1880s, 1890s from Parliament about uh, Ireland being an inferior race and the fact that they, they, the reason why they've got a famine is because uh, they can, cannot care for themselves because they're not a superior race, et cetera, et cetera. It makes whiteness weird in that context. A little bit like I think the, the crash dummy example makes maleness weird. I'm wondering how do we do that practically though? I mean, you, you were saying, yeah, you don't, you don't, we don't need another SBL seminar uh, where it's all white male scholars uh, behind a desk at the end because uh, you know from the giggles around around whenever you suggest that we've already got those uh, we, you know every year the facebook groups talk about the uh, the manuals that go on a male panel uh, a panel of people down the front of a, of a, a room or a, at a conference which is just all men uh, and it's usually white men as well but how do we make it weird because i, I guess from from my point of view Coming, coming to SBL and SBL is in the States, of course, coming to SBL as a Asian transracial scholar who I, I shared uh, jokes with other non-white scholars about being mistaken for uh, hotel help. And this is quite, uh, this has happened to me three times, three, three separate SBLs now. And a couple of other senior scholars who I know, I won't name them, it's their, their stories to tell, but it's already weird for us. How do we make it weird uh, across the board, I guess? Yeah, that's a really helpful um, question, Chris, partly. And, and the, the, the comment you made at the end almost sort of reiterates and makes, gives a sort of specific instance of the, the, the I suppose, the kind of listen desperately thing. You know, I mean, to, to realise that that's, that's the kind of experience some people regularly have in that kind of setting, which it might not occur to others of us to even think about as to have, to have on our kind of mental mental radar. And I suppose there's something, I mean, where, where the listening and really trying to, to inhabit, or, well, really trying to share the perspectives that others bring to us. I mean, it's, it's in relation to the making strange. It would be a little bit like the analogy of, um, I don't know whether others of you have this experience, that if you travel abroad to somewhere that's a really very different culture from your own, and you spend however long there, when you come back, I mean, I, I, I only spent a few weeks, many, many years ago in, in Nepal and India. Somebody I knew was, was working out there. Now my wife actually, as it happens. But anyway, um, you travel abroad and you spend a little bit of time in a, in a different time and culture, a different culture. And then you, you come back and the place that is, is very familiar to you 
strikes you somewhat differently. You you kind of realize you realize its strangeness, its oddness, its particularity in ways that when you simply inhabited it as the not just the way things are, you you didn't realize its its distinctiveness, its particularity, its its sort of oddness. And I think that's I mean again to to sort of reflect personally on how I got thinking about all this stuff. I mean, I suppose it was partly being struck by the fact that over, you know, 25 years working in New Testament studies, I'd never thought about how my racialized ethnic identity played any part whatsoever in how I operated as a scholar, what I was interested in, what I wasn't interested in, the questions I wanted to ask, because it was it was just just kind of not a necessary or not a question that got pressed upon me. And I suspect for people who come from different kinds of identity, maybe the, the question gets pressed upon you in ways that are, you know, less easy to, to evade in a sense than, than they are, than I had found them. Um, so I suppose that's, that's where the motivation to, to try and say, let's, let's, you know, let's try and reflect on what inhabiting this kind of tradition and identity does to the way I operate as a scholar partly by by attending to the ways in which other people approach their their work as scholars and the questions they bring and I, I i was sort of quite reticent about the whole last chapter of the book and there are various points at which i thought oh, i don't know maybe i should just ditch this whole chapter because i'm not very sure about what i'm arguing and how i'm putting it and how i'm presenting it and um at the end of the day one of the things that convinced me to include it was a sense that um I may well be wrong in the particular way I'm trying to kind of offer some sort of explanation or picture as to how whiteness shapes the way work is done in New Testament studies. But to pose the question and say that the issue is something we should think hard about and talk about, I kind of thought, well, that that's, I mean, that's kind of reason enough to put it on the table if even if the particular way in which I try and pursue that question is is not found particularly convincing or helpful and I suppose there's um you know almost the uh, Christianness is a very different kind of category to whiteness in many ways although of course they they coalesce in particular contexts um in the US in the UK in in certain ways and so on but I suppose there can be some similarities to the extent that because New Testament studies is, has a, a fairly firmly rooted home for all sorts of obvious reasons within the Christian tradition, that can again just become a kind of default perspective that we don't always problematize or question or make strange in that that kind of way we were we were talking about. Well, David, thank you so much for for joining us and reminding us that uh, every reading is contextualized and and particular, uh, and just really appreciate all of your insights on that. Thank you very much. I mean, you're very welcome, and uh, it's been real fun talking with you all.